We get asked all the time a set of questions about autonomous vehicles. When will they be here? Will people still drive when we have autonomous ride hailing? Will there be more or less cars in a world of robo-taxis? Will autonomous trucking come before autonomous taxis? And of course, what about that trolley problem? Brad is probably the person in the world who has thought most about these questions and answers them very directly and clearly in this episode of the Expert Series podcast. Besides answering most of the big questions around autonomous vehicles, Brad explains why roads made of concrete are similar to the structure of the internet, and we run through a scorecard of where various autonomous vehicle programs currently stand. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, Brad, it's great to have you on the podcast. I personally have a lot of excitement to to talk to you, in part because I do what I do because I came across your blog when I was uh, in the army. I started reading it and got really interested in autonomous vehicles and started investing in the space. Um, so really excited about this conversation. What is interesting oh, maybe as a starting point is how you got connected to what was back then called Project Chauffeur, Google's self-driving car project. Like, What, what were the things that you were mm-hmm. doing before that, that allowed you and put you in that position? Well, I think a lot of people have always been fascinated about the idea of self-driving cars. And I was certainly one of those people, but not involved in any way. But then um, I was at a conference, which I spoke at, where the lead speaker was Sebastian Thrun. And I had not met Sebastian at that time, but uh, I got to meet him, got to see how far they had gotten with the... Um, the team, the Stanford team, in the DARPA Grand Challenges. And if you're in the self-driving industry, you probably know about the DARPA Grand Challenges, which is sort of what kick-started most of these efforts, including what happened at Google Chauffeur. Now, uh, as separate background, back in the 1980s, I founded the very first uh, dot-com company, uh, which by which I mean a company that was created to do business on the internet. Before that, there were obviously what you might call .NET companies, ISPs, and so on. They had to exist first. But I did the first internet-based business, and uh, it sold to a lot of places, including Stanford University. And so I would hang around Stanford anyway, and I ran into two guys at a party who were uh, readers of my service, and they liked it, and they liked the idea of internet-based business. Uh, and their names are much better known today, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. And... Um, so I got to be friends with them uh, before they were uh, really uh, successful and rich as they are now, just as they were getting, uh, basically just starting uh, Google, called Backrub in the original days. But after I met Sebastian, and I realized this technology was real, people were really making it work, you know, they had done this basic stuff in the desert, and then they had moved to do the Urban Challenge in 1987. I said, wow, these numbers, I started just looking into the numbers of all this would affect and was just astonished by them, just that how big it was going to be. And I said, this is really one of the biggest ways in which software is going to change the world in the coming time. And, um, you know, there are a few things like AI, which maybe you can claim will be better. Of course, this is something that uses AI. But anyway, it's one of the biggest things. So I just started writing about it. And I started thinking about it, and I started imagining what's it going to be, how shall, how will these technologies work, inventing ways to solve problems, just and not for a commercial reason, just because I was fascinated about studying the future. And I shared what I had written with Larry, Larry Page. And Larry had not told me this, but he had, at that point, started the chauffeur project, um, and because he was also really absorbed. Uh, he had been going to the DARPA challenges um, in person, and, uh, you know, that in those days they could take a little more time off of Google. Now they can take even more time off. Uh, so I shared it when he really liked some of my visions. And he said, basically, uh, do you want to come and help on this? And so I came over and worked, talked with Sebastian and got involved. And, uh, you know, as, as, uh, as it basically went, do you want to write about this or do you want to actually do it? And so the answer was obviously to do it. Can you maybe talk about some of the personalities that were involved at the time? I don't know how much freedom you have to do that, but... I feel like the early days of Waymo, you've got Sebastian Thrun, you've got Chris Umption, who you mentioned, well, uh, you've got Anthony Lewandowski. Well, you've definitely got Anthony, and, and you've also mm-hmm. got Dmitry Dolgov, who's now CEO of Waymo, who's there from the beginning. Nero. You've got uh, uh, Zhe and you've got uh, uh, Dave Ferguson, who found Aurora. Uh, sorry, Neuro, sorry, you've, sorry, and Chris founds Aurora, of course, later on. You've got uh, Brian, who founds Argo. Um, you've got, I mean, Kodiak, uh, you can, you can run off a list of, of all the companies from which ex-chauffeur people are now doing. It's interesting to think of them as part of one organization at, at one period of time. 
anything maybe that organization really felt like it was building the future? I could easily say it was uh, the most talented um, team of people that I've had the privilege to work with. Um, everybody was top grade. Uh, inside Google, um, you've got the personal attention. Larry Page started it. Uh, later on, when Larry became CEO of Google, uh, Sergey uh, took over more direct management of Google X. And other cool projects were going on inside Google X. The second project at Google X was not as successful, shall we say, because it was Glass. Uh, but nonetheless, Glass was sexy at the time. And a lot of people were interested in working on Glass and some of the other projects that were there. Um, X was the only place that was allowed to, in fact, almost required to do hardware as part of what they were doing. The rest of the company, of course, very software and internet-based and everything it did. And all the money still coming from advertising, as is largely true today. So, um, yeah, I think a, a really great environment, a lot of dedication to the chance to really change the world. And uh, that is how I've opened almost all the talks I've given on self-driving cars. And a later uh, career of mine, which disappeared during the pandemic, was uh, wandering around the world and speaking and evangelizing self-driving cars to various audiences, both technical and lay public audiences. But this would always begin by just saying, look at these amazing numbers, right? Look at the, the 1.5 million people who die. Look at the amount of greenhouse gases and energy consumed by the automotive industry. Look at the amount of land and our cities being completely devoted to and shaped by the car. Um, my favorite number that I w will always put out at the end of my numbers that I calculated was that the human race every year drives 1.7 light years. I mean, the idea that a light year is a unit of human activity is a little bit mind-boggling. And so that puts it in a context of saying, wow, and just as software took over music and it's taken over TV now and it's take, it takes over industry after industry, news publishing, all these other things, and things outside the information world are being taken over by software and computers, well, that the car, ground transportation, the world's third largest industry, is going to be taken over by software, uh, that's just a huge thing. And so uh, why wouldn't that be a sexy project to get involved with? And to put a lot of money in. And frankly, the amount of money that was put into Chauffeur in the beginning was, by modern scales, not that much. Uh, you know, other much greater amounts have been put in, and much greater amounts will be put in. Because, as I mentioned, we got a $5 trillion industry to take over here. There's almost no investment that's not justified if you think it has a decent chance of being in the catbird seat of a $5 trillion industry. You use the word uh, evangelizing self-driving cars. Uh, which is interesting because I've compared self-driving cars to the Messiah or the different ways in which Christians and Jews view the Messiah. Um, Christians think that the Messiah is already... Well, I guess I'm Jewish on this because the Messiah hasn't come. Yeah, yeah. So in, in some sense, you know, if you ask uh, a Christian, they'll say the Messiah has already come, Jesus has, has come. And if you look at autonomous vehicles in mines and ports in many different environments... I was listening to a podcast uh, yesterday about uh, storing nuclear waste and these autonomous vehicles that like on tracks in Finland and put away the nuclear waste. Like there's ways in which autonomy has been rolled out, Kiva robots in, in warehouses, etc. Um, but the Jewish view, uh, there's a famous rabbi, Eliyahu Leibovitz, who says the, the Messiah must always be in the future, must always be coming, never arriving. Uh, so there's there's a certain amount of and and you've, you you use this example of a lion in yeah. safari and like going off road in an autonomous vehicle and chasing it in one of your blog posts, which I remember. Um, but but how do you how do you think about that tension between autonomy arriving and autonomy never arriving, which is kind of how we feel. Well, you know, waiting for God. Bad news for the Reb, though. I mean, because I think uh, it's uh, just the famous William Gibson quote about the future not being evenly distributed. Uh, you know, obviously, if you do live in Chandler, Arizona, um, self-driving cars are here for you today. Now, Chandler's not a place that really needs them. It's definitely a pilot location. And we're getting to the point where you'd be able to say that about San Francisco. And it was never going to arrive everywhere all at once. That's the Tesla vision, the idea that you could just work hard and make a car that can suddenly drive everywhere and sell it to people. But that's a that's even harder than the problem of making a taxi that can drive around a particular city, which is what most people are trying to make happen. So, uh, no, I think we are close. To that. And we're not really very far off. In fact, I was sort of pleased to listen to a podcast interview with me from almost 10 years ago where I laid out the timeline. And I actually, uh, this is 
probably 80% luck, but I was pretty much right. Uh, and I said, you know, we'll probably see those pilot projects in the late 2010s, which is exactly what we saw. And then we'll start seeing something more real in the early 20, 2020s. And then this is where I may go wrong. I think we'll see the land rush in the middle of this decade when we've got a couple of different companies who've got working technology they can deploy in a city, and they'll be running around trying to take over cities, but one at a time. Even though Google has more money than God, uh, since we're being all religious here, uh, it can't deploy robotaxi service in every city in the United States, or certainly not every city in the world. No one can do that. It's you know, it's an expensive process. You've got to go to a city. You've got to verify that your vehicle really works in that city. You've got to make nice with the city council and all these other people. Of course, you've got a map and have all those other infrastructure in place. And then you've got to buy 10,000 vehicles, which is just capital. But to do it in 100 cities at once would be a lot of just capital. In the early days of working with a team at Chauffeur, what was the evolution of your understanding and their understanding of how deployment would look like from... What I assume was, hey, you have this product, you could drive itself. There's lots of business models that make sense to what you just described, which seems to be where everyone other than Elon Musk is converging, which is much more of almost like a public utility model where yeah. it's very capital intensive. You roll it out city by city. It's really like you install the system into the city and it's, a, it's almost a utility, right? How long did it take to get to that vision and what were the other pathways it didn't really appear? Well, I will toot my own horn on this one because actually I think that the most significant contribution I made to Chauffeur, now maybe some people say it was a stupid contribution, um, was to push it in that direction. In fact, uh, in, uh, I guess it was around 2012, uh, they were working together on putting all the business plans together and they put together four different business plans and I said, you're crazy, you've got to have a robotaxi plan in here because that's where this eventually goes. And uh, um, I got my way, and so it was added. Now, Larry Burns, who you may know, who's also uh, advised there, and yeah, former GM, was also a believer in that. So I didn't do this alone. That is, that is something I can take some credit for. I have always believed that the real world-changing stuff happens only when you have a robotaxi. Uh, a car that you can, you know, the so-called, and I hate the levels, I'm notorious for hating the levels, but what they'll call the level three, the car that you can drive to the highway, push the button, and then you can read a book or do work while it takes you down the highway. That's a that's a really useful car. I mean, I would like one. I mean, I would definitely use it for my trips to San Francisco, Lake Tahoe, and so on. But that's what you might call a luxury feature. That's basically, hey, you've got a car. It has this new luxury feature that you can get some time back. It can't go and pick up people. It can't um, change the dynamics of how transportation works and how we live in cities. And so to me, that was the boring product. But that was one of the business plans that was on the, the list for chauffeur, as you're not going to be too surprised to, to find out. Because it's definitely an easier problem to do first. Right? I mean, just do the highways. And, and all of chauffeur's early testing, I shouldn't say all. In fact, quite famously, um, the project that Larry Page gave to the team to get them going was to do what became known as the Larry 1000, to drive a thousand different miles of road, only some of which were highways. Uh, and that they had to push to make that so that they could finally reliably drive a thousand different miles. And they did pull that off. And in fact, they pulled it off. Uh, there's probably a number of teams out there that still can't do that. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, a Tesla can't do that, even though a lot of people think it's further along than it is. So anyway, um, uh, well, so I shouldn't say that the chauffeur only wanted to do highway, but for a while it, it had a lot of its focus on highway. Because, you know, baby steps, it's the easy thing to do. Uh, but the long-term vision, uh, I often say that uh, transportation is the purpose of a city, which is a pretty strong statement, many people would think. And I say that because why you live in a city is because you want it to be a short trip to the things in your life, your friends, your job, your food, your work, whatever, all the things in your life. And you want that to be short. And, and of course, one way for it to be short is for it to be a short walk um, or a short trip on transit or a short trip in a car. And you want, you live close with other people because close means shorter trips. And sure, we share the sewers and we do a few other things in cities, but the main reason we live there is just we want it to be quick to all the things in our life. So anytime you change transportation, you change the nature of the city. And that happened when we switched from the horse to the trolley in the 18th century and the 19th century. When the car came along in the 20th century, and particularly also the highway along with the car, 
the city was completely redone in the 20th century. And I think something as grand comes in the 21st century. And the technology that will drive that will be autonomous transportation. I think this idea of autonomous vehicles business model naturally being one not of ownership, but of kind of a shared utility where you have things like right sizing. Vehicles don't need to have five seats if most of your trips aren't taking you to Lake Tahoe, but rather taking you to the office. Um, that aspect of autonomous vehicles is very interesting to me, and, and I kind of ran with it because you can work backwards from there and think about all sorts of other business models um, and how they could be simplified even before you have autonomous vehicles because you don't need to have car ownership once you start having marketplaces for these kinds of trips. So that's one of the lenses that I found really yeah. interesting when I first started reading your, your writing and, and thinking about uh, autonomous vehicles. I mean, one of the concepts which, I mean, invent is too strong a word, but I was the uh, probably the first to write about. Uh, I gave the name the whistle car, uh, which I named after the fact that Roy Rogers could just whistle and his horse would show up wherever he was. I don't know how the horse was magically there, but it was. Um, and this was a car that uh, could deliver itself to you, but it wasn't quite up to carrying people. Right? It was safe enough to drive around empty, low speeds, slow roads, that kind of thing. Same application as delivery robots, which was another thing I thought would be pretty important. And I am involved. I was um, advisor for starting up uh, Starship, which does uh, delivery robots on the sidewalk. Um, and almost got involved with Neuro, but uh, because of Starship, I couldn't. But the whistle car idea actually has been implemented by a couple of players now who are trying to do it. And, of course, the idea behind it was, again, what are the baby steps you can do? And the day before, you can take a, a human being and put them in a box and feel safe enough to do that. Uh, you can go uncrewed or unmanned, whatever the correct word for that is now. Uh, and so that's what the delivery vehicles and the whistle car can do. It didn't actually happen for a long time, though. Um, only really another startup that I got involved with, which unfortunately failed during the pandemic, was doing that with scooters. It made a scooter that could come to you, uh, but it didn't drive you on the scooter. You still That would actually be uncomfortable, I think, to be on a scooter that was driving itself. Uh, but it would come to you, and that was going to solve all the problems that cities have with scooters, which is people just leave them around and they, they create litter and they run them on places they're not supposed to run them. So if the scooters have this autonomous driving ability, you can solve those problems. But, you know, as we know, the scooter industry has not gone the way it was. However, um, that was that was another concept I thought. But uh, it was important. And, you know, when I talked about level three, which is, again, something, again, I, the idea of these levels, I felt was the wrong way to think about this. And they came from the government, not from developers. Was what are the steps? What could you pull off? And it's easier in an engineering basis until you get to the, the brass ring, which is this, this robo-taxi. Now, as for ownership, though, I, I've never thought that everyone would just give up car ownership. It's funny. When I talk about this, I either get the people say, you're crazy. Nobody will overriding these. We love car ownership too much in the United States. Of course, they've never been to Manhattan if they say that. Um, and half the other people would say, oh, my God, why would anyone own a car in this world? It seems pretty stupid to own a car. And the truth is we're going to get both. In fact, I think the most common thing we're going to see is people having two cars dropping to one because there's a decent robo-taxi service in their area. And some people will drop to zero, but I don't think we'll see too many drop to zero in the early days. It'll happen eventually. You talk about the reason that people might go from two to one being a robo-taxi service. This concept that it's not that people aren't going to drive, but that it's about changing the consumer transportation mix and having the car intensity in the U.S. go from over two cars to something that's closer to a little bit over one car. We think about that all the time, and it's it's been a topic we've talked about with a number of auto analysts. I remember in 2016, Morgan Stanley had this kind of provocative report that came out saying, like, you know, the number of cars sold would plummet, but the total number of miles being delivered would be would be much greater. It's, it's always been this kind of conversation, but I, I think what the gap we see consistently is what is actually required to get that shift to happen? Because that's actually a measure of a value being captured either by sale of cars or by sale of transport service. Does it have to be a robo-taxi that gets that shift to happen? You were talking about a scooter that repositions itself, right? I mean, car share services have long been unprofitable because in low-density areas, it's it's not convenient to go walk or or you have to drive to get to the car, right? Like repositioning vehicles itself could be a whole use case. 
I think so. And, and there's other people who've danced around that. Um, there's been an entrepreneur I know in San Francisco who's tried several companies to do repositioning with humans driving and stuff like that. And now we see, I think it's called Halo, doing it in Las Vegas uh, with, with remote drivers. Um, but uh, let me correct this idea that we sell fewer cars just because we have fewer cars on the road. Uh, the trick with taxis is that taxis wear out by the mile or kilometer. Today, most of the cars sold, they have a, a lifetime in years, uh, as much or more than they have a lifetime in miles. And taxis will, um, in New York, for example, they go 62,000 miles a year, and they must be taken off the road in five years. So it turns out the number of vehicles you have to manufacture is equal to the number of miles people travel in them, the number of vehicle miles, um, divided by their lifetime in miles. And there's how much they're shared is not even a coefficient in that equation. Now, so that means if you have the same cars we make today, um, if people actually travel more because travel is more convenient, you actually make more cars. But you just don't have as many in existence at any one time because they're having shorter lifetimes. That changes is the cars lasting longer. Yeah, so the cars are lasting longer. And, and when we've talked with some of the biggest rental agencies in the world, they're talking about how EVs are almost a revolution. It's like you need to start thinking about cars as modular where you can rip out the interior and replace it because the actual vehicle, the battery, the motors, the wheels will, will last for, for much longer, hundreds of thousands of miles. Everyone talks about this million-mile car. Now, the battery is you know still debatable as to how much performance they'll get out of the battery. Uh, but you'll definitely need to have uh, an interior that you can refit because you don't want to get in a, a taxi that's had 400,000 miles of other people sitting in it. It's going to be pretty worn out. But yes, if you can make the vehicle last for a million miles, that is one of the coefficients in that equation, and you will make fewer vehicles. But it's because you made the vehicle last longer. It's not because of the sharing aspects or the self-driving aspect of it that's made that happen. It's actually kind of interesting because if... I don't even know... If you made a car that lasts for a million miles, and maybe some people would say they already have... One of the problems is with ordinary ownership, where you typically drive twelve to 15,000 miles a year, then we're talking about a car that's lasting for 40 or 50 years. And that ain't happening because cars have now migrated. They're not cell phones yet, but they're much closer to it in terms of going obsolete because of technology rather than wearing out. Right now, I've got a, a drawer full of perfectly functional good cell phones that I don't use, and so do you, um, because we're not interested in them anymore. And so it's going to be an interesting questions. You actually have to redesign the vehicle so that you can refit a lot of the stuff inside it, not just the interior, not just the, um, uh, perhaps the outside. Uh, but now Tesla, for example, uh, they have already changed the computer in my Tesla. And it's just a simple field repair. They drove out to my house and did it. So they'll probably do that again. Uh, where they have screwed up is I think they're going to have to change the sensors. And that's something they didn't design to be as easy to do. But that's where you'll have to go if your cars are really going to last a million years. Light years. Light years. But yes, a million miles. But then uh, if they're personally owned, right, that's, that's, a, that's 50 years. Uh, that's, sorry, that's more than 50 years. That's like 60, 70 years, longer than you. Uh, and so that's not happening. The, uh, now, in California, you can survive that long without rusting. There's a lot of places you can't do that. So there's talk about autonomous yeah. trucking being deployable before autonomous vehicles for, for people in cities. How do you think about what's happening in that space right now? Uh, I'm in flux because uh, this is one of the predictions I made that I was not good at. I, I make this joke that, that I'm a great futurist because all the predictions that I remember turned out to be right. Uh, but I do unfortunately remember what I said about trucking, which is I did not think it would happen early. And the reasons I didn't think it would happen early was that I didn't think anybody would be ready to have their first accidents happen with 18-wheel semi-trailers. They'd like them to happen with little Priuses and, and small cars traveling low speeds in cities because there are going to be early accidents and those accidents are going to be unpredictable in the damage they do to your company. Now, you know, Uber ran over a woman and, and uh, well, they did actually shut their project down and sell it to Aurora. I thought... Organizations like the Teamsters would make a bigger deal about the labor issue, but at the time I wasn't as cognizant as I am about the shortage in truck drivers, which means that hasn't been as much of a problem. The, the counter-argument, which everyone makes, and I understood but didn't think was strong enough, was obviously the highway is the simplest environment. It's the fastest environment, but it's the simplest environment. And simple is good, but fast is dangerous. And so I thought the balance would go another way, but instead we've seen several companies get out there and um, you know get closer and closer to deploying their trucks. In including Waymo and Aurora, 
in some ways kind of pivoting towards that market as an initial use case. It's not too surprising if you, certainly if you build a car technology, you know, it's not this giant thing to move it over to the trucks. Um, if you, and that's what Waymo has done, that's what Aurora has done. Some, like Plus, Too Simple, Kodiak, and so on, decided to go specifically for trucks. And, of course, Auto. Uh, and uh, I uh, almost got involved with Auto. Uh, and uh, I, I, at first I was very upset I didn't get involved when it sold for $700 million in six months, probably at a record at that time. But, of course, as we all know, the story got quite a bit nastier later on. But anyway, uh, I... I didn't think that trucks were the best first thing. I was sort of think, get your safety proven in cars and then get onto the trucks. And I was thought the world would be a little less accepting of it than it's been. But I saw Too Simple have a you know a, a pretty nasty crash not that long ago. Aurora's had um, a crash, and uh, so that the specter of the giant vehicle with the immense weight uh, is going to show up. Uh, I just don't know how much. Now. The other reason I thought trucking wasn't a good first choice was that the value proposition in trucking is pretty straightforwardly financial. It's just, we are going to shave, save shippers money and give quicker ship times. It's a very valuable economic proposition, but uh, as opposed to moving people around, which I felt was world-changing, and in particular, the life-saving aspect of it, and a few of the other aspects are things that should appeal to the public if you do them well. 4,000s in the U.S., of which, of course, we now see about 42,000 total fatals. But, uh, and truck drivers are professionals, so they drive hopefully a little better than the average people. But they're in this very big and dangerous vehicle in this simpler environment. Trucking has grown like crazy because we've given trucks the space that we have not given to, to rail. I mean, there's been relatively little rail development in the U.S. compared to highway development over the past 100 years, right? And so we have this public free space that anyone can drive on. As soon as trucking becomes extremely cheap, the amount of trucks driving on our roads is going to skyrocket. And at that point, I can't imagine how, you know, the Federal Highway Administration does not start substantially increasing road usage tax, you know, going through cities, because a lot of these highways go through cities. Look at what's happening in Los Angeles with the port situation. The city and county of LA are trying to stop people from trucking, you know, intermodal containers out. You're going to have a usage problem. And so it, it comes back to the question of, Autonomous trucking, a lot of people will, will kind of snarkily say, you've just invented a train, right? Like we already have a lot of the technology. It's about who's built the right of way and what we've invested in from a, an infrastructure perspective that's making the space for these to either work or not work. And once it becomes popular, I, I can't imagine that the economics scale without government pushing back and starting to limit, which just creates another sort of uh, externality cost that's priced in, pushing it back up to somewhere where it is today. Well, I mean, scale to really extreme levels, I can see your point. I think there's still a lot of capacity on the roads, particularly at night, and uh, and obviously robots are pretty happy driving at night. Now, that gets rid of this one big advantage, which is human beings are limited to 11 hours a day, and that's one of the biggest reasons that the self-driving truck can, can be a huge win. There are better economics for rail freight than there are. Like, I think rail is basically dead for passengers, except for a few very specialized applications and city pairs that are just exactly the right distance apart with high speed. Still makes sense with rail. But um, when it comes with freight, there's no question that the ton mile cost uh, energy use in rail is very good. But the reason trucks have won and will continue to win is the flexibility. This is actually a, one of those lessons that maybe I'm uniquely qualified to give people, having an internet background and now working in transportation. And um, that is that the internet took over the world because of a philosophy of having a really simple infrastructure and allowing people to do anything on top of it that they wanted. They called the internet in its early days the stupid network as a uh, an answer to what the phone companies called their network, the intelligent network, back in the 1980s. And a lot of people won't remember this, of course, or have even been alive during that period. But the Internet's design is the same design from the 1980s. It's dead simple, and everything that's happened that's made the Internet the technology that changed the world more than any in the last few decades have come because of that very distributed and open design. And rails have the problem that they carry one of four things, namely trains, 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 and trains. And concrete carries trucks and scooters and buses and pedestrians and uh, cars and, and vans and vehicles that haven't even been invented. And it allows everything to be done in a distributed way. And that architecture always wins, 
even when the other architecture has advantages which seem insurmountable from the viewpoint of physics, the low rolling resistance of steel on steel, right? And, and the, the good drag of having a very long vehicle. Even in spite of those advantages of physics, uh, rail with a 10 times lower cost per ton mile, for ton mile is only used for cargo that isn't in a hurry uh, and is pretty heavy, typically, in the United States. Everything else, people are more concerned about the fact that it just comes quickly between my loading dock and another loading dock, and that's much more important to them, and it goes between any two points without having to worry about it. Someday, someone might improve rail, you know, make robotic um, intermodal transfer points that make the things happen smoothly, um, better uh, train control and scheduling so that they can make better use of the rails. Those things are all possible. I think they'd be interesting businesses to build if people build them. But um, for now, uh, I think trucks are going to win, just as anything done in the phone wins, because we keep getting a new phone every year and we keep improving our technology. Rail is still very much 19th century technology and it just not going to keep up. The theme you brought up there of the creation of an open standards-based playground where you can do whatever you want, attracting sort of creative types to come build new applications on top of them being sort of a lens at which through which to look at why road is so much more ripe for innovation than rail is. It's really fascinating. Um, in some ways, like the best way to improve rails competitiveness would be to upgrade the way in which things communicate. And so in that industry, things like precision scheduled rail, PSR and PTC and other things of the sort are starting to get there. You obviously have the core limitation of a track of rails, you know, you have one thing that can go in one direction at a time and you have to switch and whatnot. But as soon as you actually can make it more like road and it being flexible and in people being able to bid on space and timing slots and whatnot, making that more flexible like road, that that's really what is kind of necessary to unlock the productivity of that modality. I think your idea about the flexibility of, of roads versus the kind of single purpose of, of rail um, I think of two analogies related to that around lack of innovation or the potential for innovation. The first is micromobility infrastructure. I call it micromobility infrastructure. People normally call them bike lanes. But I think just like roads, bike lanes have the potential to be used by many different forms of vehicles, some of which haven't necessarily been invented yet. And I think that's really interesting. Many cities have been quite slow to build out the infrastructure. But I think once you have it, it has higher throughput capacity, at least versus the amount of public space that's being set aside for it uh, than traditional roads. So it's like one bucket, I think. One of the problems with bike lane infrastructure and sidewalks is because you've got to have what are called VRUs, vulnerable road users on that who are not robots. There are some constraints as to what you can put down a bike lane. You know, there's, you've got to put things that are compatible with bicycles there. With um, the regular road, uh, you've got this very interesting ability to move as much of the infrastructure into the virtual layer as you can. Uh, you know, I, if I were today trying to create a, a city, it might just be bare concrete without even any markings on it. The markings are only there for the humans. They're not there for the machines. Uh, and so that you have the ability in software to just reconfigure, okay, it's rush hour, all the roads are going downtown now, except for a few. And then a few minutes later, they switched around, and now suddenly this is parking, and suddenly it's a different purpose. Um, that a flexibility, which happens when all of the rules are virtual rather than physical, is very interesting. But you can't do that if you're going to have uh, cyclists and pedestrians walking on the road. And I, I'm not saying we should get rid of the cyclists and pedestrians. I mean, they're actually very important. Uh, although... Uh, there's a common phrase in among urban planners who are almost 99% what you'll call car carophobes, uh, which doesn't mean afraid of, it means dislikes, which is that, you know, they'll say this phrase, cities are for people, not for cars. And it's absolutely true, cities are for people, but that's who's in the cars. Uh, and so the direct approach is to say, what is it that people actually want? And the truth is, when I'm in the car going down the road, I want the car to have right away. When I'm on the sidewalk on my own, I want me to have right away. And you actually have, of course, a conflict of the desires of people. And so solving how you plan for transportation in a city is really a, a question of uh, the different needs of different people uh, and not simply about any one technology. Maybe I'd question your 99% statistic, because when I look at urban landscapes, Maybe they're self-hating carophobes, but definitely they've succeeded in designing an, an, an environment that's almost exclusively or a vast disproportionate amount of space is catering towards cars. I said there were two things uh, that connect in 
with this idea of of roads being kind of like an API layer that you you can build on top of and is more flexible. I think that the thing that cuts against the second the the point you were making now about how you can design cars, you can have roads without lane markings because they're for the people, is the reality is with cars, unlike the smartphone that you referenced earlier that gets updated every year, is that it takes you know a decade for the vehicle fleet to turn over. It's extremely slow to implement new technology. And on top of that, companies are also particularly slow, at least traditional uh, manufacturers, OEMs, are particularly slow to incorporate new innovation and new technology such that it's actually quite frustrating. You've got this API layer that's relatively programmable. You've got the potential to do lots of things. And if anything, micromobility has, has seen these rapid design iterations. Berlin Lime scooters have gone through many design cycles in the time that you know most vehicles haven't been updated. Um, but this seems like a structural problem. And, and I, I connected my book to the problem of car ownership or the, the challenge around car ownership because you don't have high utilization, therefore you don't have high turnover. Um, should vehicle services have the potential to have much higher turnover. But it actually squanders this opportunity of the API or the flexibility uh, aspect of the road layer being something that you can innovate on top of. And and I think consequently there's been a real lack of of change and innovation and roads are, you know, not what they could be. Like we could be in a much better situation, which is what autonomous vehicles shed light on or the potential for them. Well, for sure. But uh, it's... It's a philosophy that's not binary. Um, it's just an idea that the more flexibility you have for innovation, the more interesting innovation you're going to get. You're not going to get all of it, and nor are you going to get an environment which is 100% flexible for innovation. I was having a big argument with these guys. They just got a lot of money, uh, including from Google, among other things, uh, called Cavenu, and they're trying to build you know, a smart highway in Michigan along I-94. And the very first self-driving project in the United States was in San Diego, where they buried magnets in the road, and they were going to have a special lane for the robotic cars to drive, which they did make. I mean, they were all they could do was follow the magnets, uh, as is this the case for the um, the little vehicles in Mazdar, if you've ever had a chance to, to go to what that became, which was not very much. They had this really interesting idea of a city where they built all the sidewalks, the pedestrian streets, one floor up. And so on the ground was where the vehicles would run and the people would run above that. And by the way, I mean, and, Miami and Las Vegas is not that dissimilar. Like we've given so much of the actual floor space of the city to cars that the only safe and convenient way to walk is if you walk in the the bridges that span between buildings. And so it's almost like a matrix situation where the human space is now elevated into the sky and the ground is just overtaken by these machines. And and that's, by the way, what we don't want. Um, You know, it's not that uh, we don't want the city ruled by the cars. We want a nice balance of the needs of people when they're in cars, the needs of people when they're walking. And uh, we could go on for several hours about that. But you don't change the infrastructure. And so, uh, but... What Google discovered, and this is, I I wouldn't call this an accident, but a chauffeur project, the Google car project, was begun by the team who had just finished doing Street View, uh, in particular in Street View's Ground Truth project, which was to really up, to make the maps and bring them all inside Google. So Sebastian and Anthony, that's what they worked on, and several other people, uh, as their early project before they were given the chance to work on the car. And because of that, and also because Google is really the world's number one mapping company. I mean, you don't think of it because it's so big and everything else, but it's also uh, the top mapping company in the world. So for them, the idea of virtual infrastructure was just a total natural, you didn't even have to think about it. Of course, we'll build virtual infrastructure. That's what we do around here. What, we'd have to drive every street in the country in order to use this approach? Well, we did that last week. We'll do it again. Um, that's something that other companies wouldn't say so easily. So, but I, I am a big believer in it, in the virtual infrastructure idea, just because the virtual layer is just so much more flexible. I mean, infrastructure, physical infrastructure changes on a pace of decades. Vehicles can change, like those scooters can change in a pace of months or years. Software changes on a pace of hours. It, the, the obviousness behind that statement that virtualizing infrastructure would allow you to actually get way more things done faster belies how not obvious it is to a lot of the people who are in charge of infrastructure. And I'm sure that, you know, my conversations are just a glimpse at this, but when I've spoken with people that run DOTs um, in cities, the the caution at which they talk about the potential to roll in license plate recognition to automatically ticket people that are speeding next to a school and just how politically difficult it is to do that 
it's fascinating because it's, you know, you have a culture of innovation where people are very interested in experimenting and trying things in different realms, like within the chauffeur project, for example, you kind of talked about the culture in that organization. But then at some point they have to interface with the rest of the world. And there's just institutionalized resistance to change and to experimentation that it's as much a social issue as it is a technological it's not, just, it's not that we lack the virtual and virtualized infrastructure it's that we lack a generation of people that have certain values certain ways of looking at things certain incentives um, certain sort of social hierarchies where they pride themselves on things like being experimental that have gone into places that are that have power over these areas. How do you change that? It, it's difficult. And when you think of the world through a certain lens, that's what you're going to do. If your job is infrastructure, you think of infrastructure as the solution to problems and that naturally you want to be important in that. And there's been a lot that's gone in, particularly because self-driving cars, as we all know, they really quickly hit the peak of the Gartner hype cycle. Um, it was did not take long before everywhere you went in the world, it was, oh, this is the hot new thing. This is this is the world-changing technology. And so everyone gloms onto that. I mean, I had this sort of, uh, I, I was, was going to make a common thing about, you know, blockchain for self-driving cars, because those were the two top things on the hype cycle. There were all these companies saying, it's as though they went to the hype cycle and said, I better combine the top two or three things on that list. And that'll be the buzzword that gets me funded. And some of them got funded. Um, but of course, it's nuts. Um, it, a particular example has been uh, 5G. You know, everyone uh, involved with 5G said, oh, self-driving cars are really cool, so we'll make 5G really cool by saying it's necessary for self-driving cars, which, of course, it isn't. In fact, I wrote an essay called The Disconnected Car, where I say we should stop <laughs> thinking we're going to connect these vehicles all the time. But anyway, so it, it, this happened, and uh, it'll continue to happen, and then probably it'll happen to other technologies in the in the future as we go forward. Um, but the reality is actually you don't want that much communication. You don't want all these other things and people will look for it. So infrastructure people say, if this is going to be the big thing in transportation, what I do must be important for it. And coming to them and saying, no, infrastructure is the wrong approach. Uh, the, be the best lesson, though, that I've used that wakes people up a little bit is an Israeli lesson, as it turns out, which is, of course, that not that long ago, every city was very interested in measuring traffic inside the city, and they were spending millions of dollars tearing up the intersections and putting coils in the roads and other sensors on the roads so they could measure everything going on in all the streets of the city. And then, you know, a few, a few people in Tel Aviv come up with an app, they give the app away for free, suddenly they've got better traffic data on the whole world uh, than those guys were ever going to have with all those millions of dollars, and they have it in a very short amount of time. And of course, they used that great device and the enabler of virtual things, the smartphone, to do that in building ways. Uh, then, perversely, Google bought it, not because Google needed it at all. It had its own technology that was hmm, a little bit inferior in some ways, but pretty similar. But they just couldn't let Apple have it. So. It's now part of Google, but runs as an independent company. So this is the this is one of the best lessons, though, about the virtual approach and the reason why doing it in the smartphone, anything you can do in edge devices, is going to win, even though it may have seemed that the infrastructure approach made sense when you first thought of it. So, so Brad, you, you said you predicted that mid 2010s we'd see you know initial deployments. Um, late late 2010s, which was correct. Late 2010s, we've we've seen we've seen that we're seeing initial rollouts, crews in San Francisco, Waymo in, in Chandler, a few other things, um, some examples in China, et cetera. Yeah, I, um, I, I, since I haven't been to China in several years for some reason, uh, you know, it's really hard to tell whether the Chinese are telling you the truth about it, but they certainly are announcing very impressive deployments over there. And, and so just to follow your prediction timeline, you're expecting three, four years from now, we're going to have autonomous vehicle services that we can use and hail that are reliable in specific cities with specific investment from those companies. Um, which of the companies you think are going to be offering those services? What do you think is worth watching for? Yeah. I mean, I continue to be a fan of Waymono. Having worked there, uh, that's perhaps a bias. But uh, uh, their biggest barrier right now is I think they've gotten too big, right? They're starting to act not like a scrappy company. Uh, even though Dimitri, one of the original team, is uh, in charge of technology there. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm afraid they're becoming a bit more conservative than they should be to make that happen. It's very hard to judge crews. I still haven't had a chance. Uh, they have not, uh, they've said, oh, yeah, we'll let you have a ride someday, but they still haven't made it happen. I got the same offer, and 
the same lack of <laughs> fulfillment of that offer. Uh, I commented on Oliver Cameron's uh, LinkedIn post, and he says, next time you're in SF, I'm like, this week, I'm here. Yeah, no, they, yeah, they've said that to me many times. And and I know, in fact, um, when Kyle was starting Cruise, uh, this was actually pretty common at the time when I was about the only guy writing about it, was Kyle, before starting Cruise, uh, um, sat down with me for a while and, and went over where he wanted to do. And I said, you should do robo-taxis. And he said, no, um, he was originally going to do parking lot valet. Uh, I said, but I'll do a, an autopilot bolt-on. And then he did switch to robo-taxis later. But um, I didn't get involved with him because I didn't want to do the bolt-on autopilot that he was doing on the audio cars uh but obviously kyle's done very well and justin tv he was um i mean he had you know you gotta you can't fault the guy he's uh, he's definitely knows um anyone who does it twice is uh, you know you can you, it's harder to claim they're lucky uh when they when they do it uh, multiple times and so i have a lot of respect for them but Cruz made this big sort of statement and stake in the ground where they said listen yes we know we've started after waymo and we know waymo has great technology and people so we know we're not first but we're going to do it in San Francisco, in a real city with all the real problems of a real city. And by doing that, we will grow up faster and we will be the winner. And uh, then they got out on the streets of San Francisco, but only at night and only in certain parts of it. And then Waymo, which had always been driving San Francisco because it's in you know north, a little north of their headquarters, uh, came out and was immediately driving way more cars all day long um, and... Uh, uh, Actually, probably similar geographic region, a little, little slightly different geographic region, and uh, so it seems as though Cruz's bet that growing up in San Francisco did not allow them to pass Waymo. Uh, what they'll do beyond that, it's a little hard to do. The problem is, of course, that all we get to see from so many of these companies is the uh, the video. Now, to give Cruz credit, they have taken the step of saying that. Certain people, at least, can go in, and members of the public can go in and ride and make videos. There's a lot to be said about the fact that, and there's this guy, he became a little famous for it, in Chandler, who, you know, just sort of made it his job, not that he was being paid, but to, to ride Waymos and record them very well with video and put them on YouTube every day. But the fact that Waymo allows that is quite a big difference in statement over just saying, we'll take the press for a ride once, right? Um, so it's it's really hard to get, unless you can get inside, or you can get access to a, a truly randomly chosen ride to know what works. Because this is the big reason why you see so many people who imagine Tesla is already there, which is doing it once is a great parlor trick, but it doesn't mean anything. The real goal, I mean, I've said, well, my Tesla drove me for 30 minutes without an intervention. It's almost there. I said, no, it's got to drive you for your whole life. And then it's at the level we want. Because the average human being drives... Uh, about 500,000 miles, 600,000 miles in their life. And that's also about the amount of time per between accidents. So the average person has one accident, if you phrase it that way. Of course, many people, I think about 30 people, never have an accident in their lives. And so you could say, if it weren't for the fact that they knowingly die and we don't get to complete the experiment, that they're perfect. But one way or another, um, being able to drive without a mistake for a whole life is the standard here. And so doing it for half an hour means absolutely nothing. But not everybody understands that. Uh, and in fact, figuring out how to test it is still one of the big problems. Now, I think we're actually being way too conservative. In fact, I have an essay I'm going to write uh, pretty soon saying that we're way too focused on safety, which is, of course, a very controversial statement. Um, and in fact, but oddly, it should be the choice, it should be the role of the government to make us be less focused on safety. Now, that isn't going to happen because it seems crazy when you say it. But of course, the companies are focused on safety because they're betting their company on uh, having uh, no accidents with their product. Uh, and they also believe correctly that the government will also come after them if they have safety problems uh, and that the public will come after them if they have safety problems. Uh, so they are very focused on safety and it's not surprising that they think that's their job. But the job of the government is actually not the safety of individual vehicles. The job of the government is to improve safety on the roads. So it's not the, it's not the job of Waymo to make the roads safer. It's the job of Waymo to make Waymo's safe. But it's the job of government officials to make the roads safer. And the fastest way to make the roads safer is to get these vehicles developed faster and deployed faster. Uh, and uh, that's not going to happen, but that's the that's the uh, the numbers. I think this ties into one of my pet peeves about how regulators think about new innovation in transportation, which is cars are the default and things that they do are fine. But if a new scooter sharing service comes up, they need to be policed. They need to have special parking spaces set aside for them. 
which are may, way more restrictive than car parking spaces, which are abundant. They've got yeah. special roads they have to be speed limited on. It's like once you give power, it's very hard. It's it's kind of like Lord of the Rings and, and the ring. It's like they, they can't not touch it. Very hard to undo because once you've made a regulation, uh, to remove that regulation makes it your mm-hmm. fault if anything happens after removing the regulation, which makes it very difficult for that to happen, which is why we have to be scared of really regulations. It amazes people when I tell them that all of the other automotive safety technologies like seat belts, airbags, anti-lock brakes, stability control, forward collision warnings and collision avoidance, all of those technologies that you've got and now lane keeping and, and even Tesla Autopilot, they were all developed by industry, deployed with absolutely no regulation, deployed for years or even decades before the first regulation was written. And then those regulations mostly were, wow, these anti-lock brakes are really great. Everybody has to put them on now. That's been the state of automotive regulation in the past. And now we see this completely different uh, thinking, which is even before it's exists and deployed, we've got to figure out what the rules should be about it because, you know, God forbid um, there be any risks taken. However, getting back to the order of the teams. Well, I've already made a number of statements about Tesla. And I will say, you've got to love and hate Tesla at the same time. I own a Tesla. I drive it. Great car. Um, I can even claim, uh, it's not, I don't think it did anything, but in 2010, I sat down with Elon Musk for an hour telling him why he had to do self-driving. And I don't think I'm the reason he did it, but I was certainly one of the people who encouraged him to get into it, And uh, uh, even though I'm highly critical of the, of the way that he's done it. But he's taking this very long-shot bet that basically he can do it with just the sensors in a 2016 Model S, um, because uh, there's a variety of reasons that pushed him into that decision, and even taking out the radar. And that's possible someday, but it requires breakthroughs that, you can't name the date of, and so um, it's it's a long shot bet. And uh, so you're not saying an F, but you're saying it's not a. It's they're they're not high up in the list. Well, I certainly no. I give their current condition of their vehicle an F. I've got the Tesla full self driving uh, so called beta uh, in my vehicle, and it's horrible. Right. Okay, so I, I I think the grade the curve grade system is good. So Tesla F. Yeah. Well, no, I actually uh, have a video on YouTube. You can see it where I give Tesla a big F. Can we talk about Mobileye maybe? Mobileye's deployments. Uh... Uh, Mobileye is very interesting to me, but I have not had the chance to you know ride in. So all I can see of Mobileye is their videos. Everyone's videos are impressive. Is the problem? And their videos are also quite long. So that's I mean, a positive. An hour versus 30 minutes is that much of a difference, but it does feel different. Yeah, um, I, so I, I generally am very interested in Mobileye. You can see an hour-long discussion I had with uh, uh, with Amnon uh, on my YouTube channel um, about some of the issues there. Um, he, Mobileye, again, is one of those predictions that, uh, that I was uh, not fully correct on, which is I do not think and certainly did not think that the winner would come from the ADAS world, which is also the world that Tesla's coming from. Of course, Tesla used to use Mobileye uh, as autopilot in its early days. Um, And so I have not expected it would come from the ADAS world, but Mobileye has done enough to make me moderate that prediction about them. I mean, A, they also have this LiDAR and uh, radar unit that they've built as part of Intel and with the resources of Intel. Uh, of course, they were going to be split off from Intel and go public, but something happened in the stock market. I can't remember what it was. Um, uh, although Intel stock has also suffered quite badly. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I, I think Mobileye is very interesting. They are making some of this vision bad. The RSS system is kind of interesting. I think the mapping system that Mobileye has built is very interesting. Um, it's interesting in particular because only a few people have so many cameras on the road that they could pull off. What uh, I mean, Waymo couldn't do that. Waymo doesn't have you know tens of millions of of cars under its control. Now, the cars with Mobileye cameras in them, not all of them are under Mobileye's control. Some of the more recent ones are. They have to go through the OEMs and get permission and so on to change what goes on. That's one thing Tesla has. Tesla's got well, it'll be up to 2 million cars on the road now, and they have full and complete control to reflash those cars with anything they want anytime. And that's actually a pretty that's a pretty useful thing to have. So I, I don't want to diss that aspect of Tesla. They have an advantage in that. Waymo has far fewer cars, but they have, and they have full com- complete control over them, and they get way more, to use their name, data from those vehicles. So they can actually, uh, if, when it comes to being able to gather useful data, although three of those companies actually are in uh, good leadership positions. Uh, any auto OEM, in theory, controls a large fleet of cars after a bit of time of deploying stuff into it. None of the car OEMs that have their own projects 
uh, I rank very highly at all, I'm afraid. So, I mean, I will say that uh, Argo as a startup mentality and you know, Cruise can have a startup mentality. So I can say Argo and Cruise, but if you're going to ask me what's going to come from Daimler, what's going to come from, from BMW or the Japanese players, um, other than many of them have just made arrangements with one of the tech companies uh, licensing in, and they've invested, of course, in uh, you know Ford and Honda, have invested into Argo, and uh, Aurora's had up and down with its different investors. I mean, the, the ability for OEMs to pull data off their vehicles is is atrocious in oh, my yeah. experience. I mean, we, we were we were listening to uh, a major yeah infrastructure investor talk about their partnership with an OEM to to build out charging. And you'd think that, I mean, the, the reason the partnership is interesting is because the OAM can say, well, this is where our trucks are driving and and they're not pulling the data off. The, you know, the, the whole partnership was to better place charging for trucks. And it's like you know, they, they barely know where the trucks are. Yeah. So Mobileye with, with RAM actually, I think, gives a great answer to all those people who say maps aren't scalable. Um, I think that if you've got a fleet not even nearly the size of Mobileye's. I mean, Mobileye can claim there'll be a Mobileye camera go by any change of the road within just a few minutes. You don't need to do it within just a few minutes. Um, it's fine if you do it over a smaller period of time. But uh, I think maps are quite scalable, and maps are the right approach. That's not, not something that Tesla would say they agree with. They do use maps uh, of certain areas, but they don't want to admit it. And, of course, almost everyone else is very heavily map-based. Although Kodiak does not use maps, there's still a few other players that don't want to do it. So, let's run through some quick names and some grades. You mentioned Kodiak, maybe the, the trucking companies. Uh, so this is the problem is uh, I made a list actually of milestones that I can use to try and grade companies because short of them letting me see what's really going on by sitting in the car and, you know, seeing the diagnostic display and so on. The only, the only thing we have, uh, not the videos, the only thing we have from these companies is what they're willing to do. Right? Do you have the guts to do this? So the fact that a company has the guts to deploy with no safety driver, that says that there was a meeting where the team presented to the board and the lawyers and said, we're safe enough to deploy with no safety driver, and here's why. And then the board and the lawyers signed off. Right? That's, that's actually a big clue. That's the kind of clue that says, this team's far along, because that ma meeting happened internally, even so, though you didn't get to attend it. So, so who's there? It's basically Cruz and Waymo? Uh, and the Chinese companies, yeah. Now, okay. of course, they've got this different Chinese rule. And the Chinese companies say they have no safety driver, but they still have an employee in the car in a number of cases. Uh, AutoX has sworn to me they're operating with no employee in the car in certain areas, so I'm, I'm going to have to see whether they're telling the truth or not. Um, I've heard but, some wild stories about AutoX over the years. but <laughs> Yeah, well, and so, I, but again, if, if I can go ride in the vehicle, which if I would go to Shenzhen, I would certainly go and ride in the AutoX vehicle, but I can't right now. There's this virus going. So, so basically, in summary, we can say that Waymo and Cruise are doing decently well. It still seems like slow deployments. I think what, what I've seen from AutoX and Baidu is saying, and in, to some extent we ride in, uh, saying they've had the guts to do that. And even Yandex had the guts to run with, it's funny, I think putting the safety driver in the passenger seat is mostly a stunt. But it shows a certain level of guts. It says, we do that, there's just a little more chance if something screws up that the safety driver's not going to be able to grab the wheel in time. Because you can still grab the wheel from the passenger seat. And I'm sure they give them an emergency brake or an emergency stop. But it's basically just, what have you had the guts to do? And I've proposed, but nobody's taken me up on this, that, you know, it's nice that you're releasing videos of what your car can do. You've got to do it where um, you announce, at a time that we random, you will drive a route chosen at random, um, and so you won't pick the route and you won't pick the time, and then you'll put an uncut video of that out. And if you're willing to do that, that says, okay, you're confident you actually will pull off any of the random drives that might show up. And that's, again, only they inside know how, how well they're really doing. And, uh, you know, so now there's some companies who at least have gotten to the level of deploying services, letting people in. The Motional is doing that as well, so I would put them in the you know, that middle tier of companies that have been willing to at least let people see it in uncontrolled circumstances. Because that, again, is the only real clue we get. You either got to let me ride in it and let it operate in something that's not your choice. Because anybody can ha can make a route work and drive it. Well, not anybody, but if you've, if you've invested whatever you've invested here, you better be able to um, make your chosen route work. And so showing me your chosen route works doesn't do much. Uh, showing me you can do unchosen routes is a big step. Showing me you're willing to let random people the public encounter, which Cruz and Waymo have done, and those Chinese companies have done. Um, that's a step. Other than that, you, you could be in a lot of different states, and we wouldn't know. 
So you're basically saying we need a standardized test for autonomous vehicles. We don't have this yet. But right now we've got four grades. We've got companies like Cruise Waymo that have taken out safety drivers and seem safe enough. You've got companies like the Chinese companies that are uh, in that in, in the category of taking out safety drivers, but maybe that's an it's a bravery decision rather than a technology decision. And then there's a whole bunch of companies in the middle that we really just don't know. It's like Schrodinger's cats, alive or dead. Um, we'll only know if something yes. bad happens if they release some data. And then this Tesla, which you're grading as an F. Well, right. But although, you know, to give Tesla credit, they are the most open about letting me see and letting people see how well their system performs. I mean, I have it in my car. But the problem is, I mean, it can't get down the block. Um, yeah, they're, they're I mean, in the category it, it, because it, they've been separated out from everything else because you have some information about how badly yeah, it performs. I, I, it's unfair in a sense. I'm saying, well, you have done the right thing in that you've let people really know how you're doing. But, you know, that doesn't stop the answer from being not so great. Just to summarize, I, I wanted to say one thing about something you said earlier about the, the role of regulators is to protect risk or enable certain kind of risk taking for the interests of the public good because you wrote something that I think was very thoughtful on this point. There was a phase, and you know we still have relapses to it occasionally, but it was a, it was a horrible phase in the history of self-driving vehicles when um, everybody was talking about trolley problems and how autonomous vehicles would be deciding between killing pedestrians and killing their owners. Um, but at the time, you wrote about the meta-trolley problem, which is there is a meta problem of obsessing about the trolley problem and delaying the deployment of autonomous vehicles because we're consumed by this question of whether it should kill this person or should kill that person. And in reality, it's just going to kill less people. And if you don't deploy autonomous vehicles and take the risks necessary in order to roll out this technology, you're going to have more carnage in the meantime. And and that is like a real consequence and a bad outcome. Um, so any thoughts on, on, on that in conclusion? But I, I think... I think that was a, a profound thought, and I think it highlights thinking about things in a broader perspective and understanding that this technology in the long term actually creates a much better world for ourselves. There's risks involved, and, and it's not necessarily guaranteed, but it's, it's a really interesting and exciting opportunity. Well, I'm glad that we don't. It used to be you could set your watch by how quickly someone would ask about the trolley problem when you talked about this technology. And um, I, I came up with the best of my snappy comebacks whenever someone asked me about that, which is, well, the robots are watching and they're going to run over whoever it is that asked that question. <laughs> uh, just as punishment for having done so. Uh, Sounds like the Chinese response. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm glad we're not, but, but I think we still have an overfocus on safety. And that's because, and we're going to get very uh, technically philosophical here, um, there are broad classes of philosophy. This is what trolley problems are actually about, is trying to understand utilitarian philosophy, just saying what's the best public good total number of deaths, for example, is a utilitarian question, or total number of injuries or accidents. And uh, more moral philosophies. That just deontology, the right thing to do. Kantian yeah, philosophy. De deontological philosophies. I wasn't going to use that $5 word uh, I in resist. a general podcast. Yeah, you can't resist it. Uh, um, but yes, which is just to say that it's it's wrong. I mean, I mean I've um, had discussions with friends where I say, what if I could deploy a self-driving car, and in the early days it's not very good, and it's going to kill five people who shouldn't have died. But then 10 years from now, it's going to be saving 100,000 people every year, uh, or, or around the world, or, or whatever, 10,000 in the U.S. And they say, you shouldn't deploy it. It's not ready if it's going to kill those five people, even though... Down the road, it's going to save those hundreds of thousands of people uh, and do it sooner, which means the total number of, of people saved is much, much greater than the number of people harmed. And we have a hard time with any question of that sort. I mean, a classic example is Moderna vaccine. Moderna vaccine, do you know, by the way, when that was ready? A week after COVID was discovered. Yeah, yeah, February, Feb February of 2020. Before you realize going into this will suddenly mean that our podcast won't show up on Spotify. Oh, I'm sorry. Or... Okay, well, let's, <laughs> no, let's not continue. talk about um, that. The, don't say the c word, as 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 it is often said. Um, however, so we don't have, and we still don't have any way that we could have known in February that that vaccine would do what it would do. But if we somehow could have known. Uh, five million people died around the world, and a couple of million of them would not have if we had been faster about getting deploying the technology that we had. And self-driving cars have a similarity. We have 
a self-driving car. Uh, there's a study. I'm going to write a, a, an even stronger evisceration of it, which came from Rand, where they put forward some mathematical arguments saying that uh, human beings kill, uh, have, an, have a fatal accident every 80 million miles on the road. So if you drive your self-driving car for 80 million miles and you only have one fatality, that's not good enough. Because, of course, statistically, that could have been just an anomaly. Uh, you really have to drive for a billion miles or more, which, of course, you cannot do. Nobody can drive for a billion miles. Not even Google can afford to do that. Um, you, the other reason you can't afford to do that is nobody keeps the software build stable so that it's driving the same software over the course of, of any really long distance. Uh, and that philosophy seemed right from a certain statistical point of view. But the analysis which goes that once you have driven, by the way, I don't think you even have to drive the 90 million, but once you've driven 90 million, you can say, okay, we cannot say for certain that it is safer than a human being, but it's now very likely that it is, right? So what are the odds are that it's actually safer and you're delaying it? And how many people die because of that? And that number is off the charts, the number of people that you hurt with that delay versus taking the risk. Because if, by the way, you're wrong and you let it out and it is bad, it's not going to get very far before you are going to learn what was wrong with it. So anyway, this math needs to be redone and people need to rethink about it and make the hard thing. So individuals are not utilitarians. We don't just count the bodies and say fewer bodies, good, more bodies, better. That's what the trolley problem actually asks. That's what the, you know, the real purpose of the trolley problem is to help people understand that question. We have to find a way to find the right marriage between that, you know, that sort of very clinical body count analysis and the, um, the, the safety is everything moral analysis, something that comes a little closer to the best thing for safety on the roads and the lowest risk on the roads. And we're not morally or not psychologically capable of doing that right now. And I'm not quite sure how we can become so, but there will be a tragedy if we don't. Yeah, it's definitely about managing public perceptions. On that note, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a very interesting conversation, and we look forward to seeing you next time we're in the South Bay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good to see you virtually. I'll see you again physically. And, uh, and of course, good success to Red Blue. Absolutely. Okay, take care. Bye, Brad.